Welcome to the Healing Place podcast, a space filled with inspirational stories of hope, along with practical advice for your healing journey. Your host is Terry Welbrock, trauma warrior, writer, speaker, blogger, therapy dog handler, and founder of the Sammy's Bundles of Hope Project. As a survivor and a thriver, Terry's mission is to shine the light of hope into the world by interviewing insightful guests from across the globe. Please stay tuned at the end of today's interview as we honor our sponsors. The Healing Place podcast is a fiscally sponsored project of Fractured Atlas. Now, here's your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. Welcome, everybody, to the Healing Place podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock, and I'm excited to have with me today, Lara, did I say it? Yes. Kane. Yay! <laughs> so welcome. So I have to read it only because my menopause brain, you know, it flies out. Educator, consultant, national speaker, and ACES Connection. Uh, you work for ACES Connection, which is, I'm a huge, huge fan of. Uh, so yeah, I'm really excited to have you here with me today. Thanks for asking me to join you. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, what do we what do we want to dive into first? <laughs> uh, well, I can give you an overview of kind of all of the things I have going on now, and then maybe we can talk about the road to that. Awesome. That's perfect. Um, so, like you said, I I work for Ace Connection, so I am the Southern California community facilitator, and I'll explain kind of what that looks like in a minute. I'm also um, a consultant, so I consult directly with schools all over the country around trauma-informed, resilient building practices. Um, and I'm a keynote speaker and former educator, um, and I'll talk about that when I kind of explain how I got here. Um, so currently, <clears throat> as the ACES Connection Southern California Community Facilitator, my job is to help any community in Southern California, which is a big, that's a big area, right? Oh, yeah. That wants to um, build a cross-sector resilience building movement in their community. So none of this work that we're trying to do can be done by one agency, one person. Um, it has to be a collaborative web that supports families and communities so they can thrive, right? right. So that is exactly what we're trying to foster. And we have the online network through ACES Connection. The communities have pages um, where they can talk with each other, but also, of course, the national, you know, ACES Connection page where people can get all sorts of resources. Um, but then on the ground, we um, help facilitate meetings sometimes or get them started, help them organize a screening of resilience if they want to. There's a lot of different ways <clears throat> that these have gotten started. Um, and that's really um, exciting because although I've started off in education, it's clear to me that schools can't do this work alone. A school has to be doing this work within a community and have partnerships in the community and support from the community. So they are one part of this interconnected web. Yeah. So looking at it from a very interconnected systems view. Right. I, I, you know, I, I totally relate to that because I worked in uh, a mental health agency in the Cincinnati area and I was assigned to various schools, but that that agency was working in collaboration with these elementary schools and, and middle schools. And what a, what a huge need there was 
and is in the schools and and even more so than what I could provide or the agency could provide because there were so many kids, particularly in the one school that, it, that comes to mind that I was thinking of, it was um, in a community that there was a lot of uh, heroin addiction going on mm-hmm. with parents and just the demands on the teachers and on the staff and these, these kiddos that were just struggling just in their home environments and then coming to school, obviously, um, with struggles. Um, yeah, just, yeah. I, I love the idea of it being community. It uh, has to be. I mean, and especially like in Ohio, you know, this, like the opioid crisis has oh, affected yeah. kids and schools I mean they're not immune from this, right? If, if kids are not with their parents and they're placed in foster care or their parents have overdosed or all of these things that are happening to children that they can't control that comes to school with them. Yeah. And schools are left with trying to figure out how to respond in a way, you know, that everyone there cares and wants to respond, but they aren't equipped necessarily. And they need partnerships and they need training and they need support. We need to, uh, we need to address this from a community standpoint. Otherwise um, kids really lose out. Oh, for sure. Yes. Yeah. And I think the more that the community understands the impact that it's not just oh, this person is an addict, but how is that impacting their children? How is that impacting, you know, that grandparents are now raising these children and you, there's just so much to it. Um, And and as we understand ACEs science more deeply, we see how much of addiction is related to ACEs, right? So these adverse childhood experiences we, we use and become addicted to numb the pain that we're not dealing with, you know, there's, and it's all related to trying to interrupt, you know, that's why we're working so hard to try to interrupt these ACEs upstream, right? Yes, so looking right. At, looking at how do we prevent them, and of course, heal, heal those of us that are already grown and have, and have them, but, but really, we are highly focused on how, um, on how we can be preventative and right. support communities so that they're thriving um, healthy, resilient places where um, people can get the support that they need. And that's a big, I mean, that's, that's a big task. It's a, we're looking at, you know, a long-term plan, but we have to start thinking that way now um, if we want to get, if we want to make these big changes societally in schools, you know, we have to really be forward thinking and start working hard <clears throat> to do that now. Right. For sure. So that. So yeah, so that is my um, work with ACES Connection, which I just love because it's so related to where I started and where I came from. And and it's just an extension of um, my work with schools. And so, and like I said, then I also um, spend quite a bit of time traveling and working with schools um, directly that want some like hands-on guidance, um, coaching through, uh, how, and again, similarly with communities, schools can't dabble around the edges with this. If they really want to make significant change, they need to go deeply, right. look at policies, practices, their school board needs to understand this. It has to be a systemic effort in a school and district. And <clears throat> that's a huge task. And it, again, long term, you know, we're looking at the long view, five years at least to make these kind of um, big changes. But of course, there's things that you can do right away. So that um, often schools need some kind of outside technical assistance in guiding them through what that looks like and how to 
what does it look like in the classroom? Teach, I mean, I went to a really, really excellent school of education and I wasn't prepared for any of this, right. none of it, you know, right. and most teachers aren't. Right? I was going to say most teachers are not, right? No, no, no. And, and I, you know, I got a good education and um, I was really excited. I was like 25 and, you know, I, uh, I walked into, I was a teacher in an alternative high school, which by choice, that's really where I, what I wanted to do. And um, yeah, in the first couple of days, I was like, wow, I am not prepared for this at all. And I need to really, really think about um, how I'm going to uh, approach this to be successful right. um, with, with my students. So I think what, one of the things that I really leaned on, um, and I, I've talked about this in, in some of the blog articles that you've read, that I went to a high school that was very much rooted in the ideals of progressive education. So we're talking about like way back in the late 1800s, like Dewey, Montessori, people that really believed in the humanness of schooling, um, letting kids explore, being relationship focused, being hands-on project-based, very relevant, very real. Um, a lot of the stuff that we're trying to, that we're starting to talk about now, like they, this is a somewhat recycling of, of ideas in a yeah. new context, right? And in the 70s, 60s and 70s, again, there was this big resurgence of, of progressive education models that, try, that were tried. Um, and my high school was a, a, a really unique partnership between the Ford Foundation um, and the University of Wisconsin. And it was a public high school. And it was small, like 300 kids, and um, you go there by choice. And it was a very collaborative effort between teachers and parents and kids. Kids, it was very democratically run. Students made decisions about policies and practices, um, as did, you know, te teachers rotated who was the principal. Um, <laughs> you know, and it was kind of like the not it, you know, like no one <laughs> it an authoritarian role because these were a bunch of kind of radical hippie teachers, of course, in the 70s. And, um, but a lot of the things that the school did again, um, are so relevant now in this framework of like creating healing places, schools that are healing, heart-centered, but yet still focusing on, you know, academics and, you know, right. learning. But what does that mean? Like, what is the purpose? What, what kind of learning are we talking about that really sets kids up for success um, when they leave school and ready for college? And this, this school had a the primary focus was on relationships between adults and kids that every student felt connected to an adult in the school. And this is, I mean, I was in school in 1986, yeah. right? So we're talking about stuff that we're trying to do right now back then. Right. So really thinking about um, relationships, connection, then using that lever to drive belong, a sense of belonging and community. We were a family and that drives academic pursuit. We were passionate about being there. We felt like we belonged. We felt empowered to learn. So we were given a broad you know, view, like what are you interested in? Pursue, yeah. really passionate about, and that teaches you how to learn. And so it was less focused on the technical aspects of um, memorizing dates and facts and more emphasis on co-constructing learning with with the adults, they were more like facilitators, guides of learning. And we were there to, to be scholars, 
everything was Socratic method, everything, you know, we, we read books and, and discussed them deeply. We learned how to do, we talked about critical race theory when I was in 10th grade, you know, I mean, we were talking about these very deep concepts um, and they always tried to relate it to what was going on around us in the world. And when we did fall down, um, there were times when I, you know, was very much exhibiting my at-risk youth behaviors, right? And not going to school or not um, making good choices. They stepped right in and said, you know, we miss you. Why aren't you at school? What's going on? How can we help? They came to my house. They knew my parents. You know, it was a very um, deep relationship. And sometimes when you're 16, you don't want it. You're like, get out of my business. Right. But really, I mean, they were there for us when we stumbled, um, which of course we did. And many of us, um, and I know alums from that went to school in the 70s. I know alums that went to school in the 90s have still have these very deep relationships with our teachers, yeah, with the adults in our lives that made a difference for us and yeah. um, felt very, I was very, very prepared for college. I felt like, because I knew how to learn. I knew how to dive right in. I knew how to be interested in things. I knew I didn't need someone telling me what to memorize or what to read. Like it was very self-directed because of that experience. So when I think about, if our if our goal in schooling is is towards academics, that we're reaching that goal as well by being so heart centered in our in our pursuit. So I'm just trying to lay the 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 groundwork so that when I, you know when I went to become a teacher in an alternative high school and I thought I was going to do things kind of as I was instructed to do in college, I quickly had to kind of throw all that out and go back to what I knew worked from my own experience. Love my students empower them to learn, meet their basic needs first, um, and really focus on that relationship for discipline if I yeah. needed to, or, you know, to encourage them to make good choices. Um, and I would just say that the one thing that I didn't know anything about was self-care. <laughs> and I epically failed at that and dramatically burnt out at the end because I was trying to do everything. And I think that really um, informed my perspective around this community support, right? The school was trying to meet the needs of kids who'd experienced an immense amount of trauma. Most of my students had very high A scores. I didn't know any of this at the time. I didn't know this language, right? right. But I knew, I knew that what they were experiencing outside of school was coming in the building with them. They weren't leaving it at the door, of course. None of us can do that, especially, you know, 15, 16-year-olds. And that there, what the school was trying to really, I mean, I drove my kids to drug treatment. I took them to college applications. I took them to the doctor. I was there when their babies were born. Like I, way beyond what you think of as a scope of a teacher, right? Um, but it felt like there was, it was so needed. And if we had a better system of support around us, then we would have, both my teaching partner and I would have um, been a lot healthier adults. Yes. We didn't so understand. just going through my head right now. I mean, it's, I didn't know anything about vicarious trauma, but I'm listening. I'm listening to my students every day, talk about what's going on at home and the things they can't control and the drug abuse and the domestic violence and the, you know, just all of the things that they're trying to manage as, as young people and taking it all in and taking it all in. And I didn't know that I was supposed to do something about that to not let it affect. Right. 
you know, so it just it just piled in and piled in and piled in until I experienced what now I know is, you know, compassion fatigue, where I was just like, I can't, I can't hear anymore. I can't listen anymore. I don't want to know anymore. I can't take it. I just had another student, you know, die or, you know, I just had like, there was just so many things where I just, I'm like, I cannot keep going. And I thought for a long time that somehow that was a failure on my part, you know, that I didn't, I didn't have what it took to stick in there, you know, right? Like I failed them. I didn't, I wasn't strong enough. Um, So when I came across, uh, I was in Wisconsin working at the Department of Education there uh, as the state homeless coordinator, still working with, you know, kids, but a little bit more protected, I guess, from the direct impact. I, it was when I first learned about ACEs and trauma and self-care and compassion fatigue and I, my head exploded <laughs> completely, completely, you know, changed my world. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And again, I, the, like I have a million thoughts going on because everything you said is just, uh, I, one, I relate to it in so many levels because yes, I remember driving home from sessions with kids in these schools and bawling my eyes out to my kids on the phone, like, Oh my gosh, you know, and, and coming home and thinking, I can't, I can't do this anymore. It's hurting my soul. Mm-hmm. But I knew that these kids needed me and yeah, Oh, I get it. Totally. Yep. Um, but one of the things that pops in my head is I just did a video for a, for another friend and podcast guest and, it was hashtag one caring adult and it was yep. you know, the impact of one caring adult. And that's what makes me think about, I know I saw you work with Jim Spore leader um, yep. and I love Jim. Jim's been on the podcast and the work that he did in the high school in Washington. Um, it, it, it just that one caring adult. And if we, we can get more and more and more of those hashtag one caring adult, mm-hmm. you, again, as a community, then it's not, you don't feel like it's all on your shoulders, right? On that right. teacher that feels like I have to save these kids or do everything that I can. Yeah, um, because, absolutely. So your job is to bring these resources together so that it does become one caring community, really. <laughs> That's right. Because right. I often, when I'm talking with teachers, I was a teacher, I get it. I know there's another person coming in telling you about this new initiative and this this thing you have to do and you have to be this amazing adult for all these kids, right? And it feels super overwhelming. And and it's easy to just say, be like, nope, I'm gonna close my door and I'm gonna keep doing things like I did before. But if we, if we think about this as a collective, that you don't have to be that adult for every kid in the building. You need to be that adult for a few kids. And if mm-hmm. everybody has that approach, then all, you know, ideally, right? All of the kids have that one person and it doesn't have to just be a teacher. It can be any, but any adult in that school building you know, that interacts with them. Yeah. I've had some kids where it was the bus driver or the lunch lady or the, you know, it can be the secretary. It can be anybody that's interacting with them that they feel like is their advocate that truly sees them for who they are and will go to bat for them and cares about them authentically, you know, and wants to know how they're doing. If we approach that as a collective, we, I, I, even in a really big school, I believe like we can, um, we can make that happen. And I, I also, you, I mean, for me, that's a huge reason why I advocate for not having such big schools. I mean, even if we take really big high schools and break them into pods, I mean, schools have gotten very creative about how they design their hallways, you know, like freshman only hallways, yeah. or 
you know, grade level teams or family housing units, like they have, everybody's um, developed into, you know, groups of maybe 500 kids. That really allows us the chance to know our kids and not be overwhelmed by the numbers. I mean, the, the, it's insane when we try to have classes of 35, 40 kids, especially in a high school where you have that many, you know, five or six times a day. And then we're like, build relationships with your students, you know, and you have 50 minutes to do that and do everything else that we're asking you to do. So for me, that's why I try to approach this from a very systemic approach that we need to disrupt the system that we have. We know what works. Decades of research from the top psychologists, education experts, child development, neurology, you name it. We know what works for kids. We know what employers are looking for. You know, there's a whole 21st century learning movement, right? That we know what we need to do and it's not what we're doing right now. Right. And that it's a behemoth system. I get it. Like I know that we're talking about moving a mountain, but we have to start one school at a time, one district at a time, one kid at a time. We have to change the way we do things because we're not, we're, we're not doing the best we can for kids. We're not preparing them for the world. And we're in, often doing harm. I mean, I, I am the biggest public school champion out there you will find. I love school. People think I'm weird. Like I'm super nerdy about school, but I'm also its biggest critic in, with much love, right? Because I, yes. want it, I want it to be at its best potential. I think that schools have done so much harm and have become have been places, you know, historically been places of trauma for so many families, especially families of color and families from communities that are high poverty or, you know, on the, on the fringes, school is not a safe place. Right. Parents don't feel comfortable coming to school. They had horrible experiences with school. When I was a teacher and I worked in this alternative program, our, it took us years to build trust with some of our parents because they had had such harming, hurtful experiences done to them by school administrators or teachers or, you know, people who really um, harmed them and they couldn't get over that. And so we have a lot of work to do to rebuild that sense of psychological safety for everyone and trust and, and, and really be willing to examine the policies that we have that might be doing harm when we're looking at exclusionary discipline. Like for me, this is all part of this. Yes. You know, and it does seem overwhelming, but I love the idea of what you just <laughs> said of one kid at a time, one classroom at a time one yeah. teacher at a time because that's how that change is going to happen yeah um, yes yes and I have exam I mean I people are like this can't be done I'm telling you there are examples all over the country here in Los Angeles where you know on a public LA school with you know that's a neighborhood school that's high poverty that's you know 99% Latino where people would say that can't be done it is being done Everywhere, there are examples of these shining lights that are showing us the way of how they have completely worked within the system that exists, with the funding that exists, and completely changed the experience for kids and adults in that building. Because it's important that the adults have a good experience in that building, too. You know, it needs to be a community for them. We need to right. build collective care. Just like we're talking about building relationships with kids, teachers we can't just say, take care of yourself, go take a bubble bath, go, yeah. you know, whatever. Right. Cause that also becomes burdensome. Then you're like, great. That's one more thing I'm failing at. You know, I can't do that either. It needs to be collective care. 
So yeah. there needs to be policies in place. There needs to be a wellness room for teachers where they can go yeah. recharge, right? They need their space too. I was it, just going to say that is that I yeah. saw an article about that that had a wellness room for teachers. And what I found fascinating, because I'm a big fan of reading comments from people, because I think that helps give, you know, a, an understanding of where the general community people in general are coming from and obviously you have trolls on things that you know right you know they're poking the fire just so they can get responses but you know some of these people would say i you know i understand about you know self-care and la 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 but what about the kids why don't the kids have a self-care room and la la, la. but i and so how many people were coming back and defending these teachers and saying, you don't understand the need for this for these mm. teachers. And I loved seeing that is that I think there really is start of an understanding within the community that they're starting to get it. Um, that teachers do need this support because then their kids are getting that support. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's that, you know, that whole thing, you need to put your oxygen mask on first before you can help anybody else. Your bucket needs to be before you can fill anyone else's bucket and if teachers are underappreciated overworked exhausted not cared for they are going to burn out and leave and they are we need to build systems of support around them and I mean culturally we need to appreciate them it's the hardest job you know it's right it's and it's always one of the listed as one of the most stressful jobs right up there with nursing right people and and they get paid (laughs) Like, don't even get me started, right? <laughs> so our, prior, you know, our budgetary priorities need to change, right? There are, we need to take care of our teachers. We need them to be there for our kids. We need them. Yes. Without them, what are we going to do? Right. And we're taking them for granted, and that's not okay. No. Yeah, yeah. for sure, for sure. All right. So, um, yeah, talk to us a little bit. I mean, obviously we still want to talk about, you know, some of your other roles, but your, your personal journey. Mm. I mean, some of it is intertwined in what I, when I, you know, what I talked about for sure. Like as, as a kid, as I was a wild teenager, um, I had been a victim of, of sexual abuse as a t- as an early teen, like tween yeah. and um, didn't, of course, you know, didn't know how to deal with it. Didn't deal with it quite well in the beginning. And then that came out in all sorts of ways, right? Because it does, it comes out, <laughs> it's going to come out one way or the other. And I was, um, I went wild and, you know, was being very destructive and, thought I knew everything and was just having fun and you know but I was you know of course as an adult you look back and you're like oh <laughs> if my kids did any of that you know like blah, blah, blah. like I you know I, yeah I, I make fun of myself but of course at the time I was just acting out all of the pain that I was feeling and um along with just normal teen you know teenage angst and developmental stuff um and it really was a collective of support that put me back on track and school was one of those you know being when I was in eighth grade I had pretty much determined that I wasn't going to go to school anymore I was done school had been a place of like elementary school was amazing middle school was horrible for all of those reasons you know all of that combined and I was like that's it I'm not I told my parents I'm not going 
I'm, I will not put myself through that and I'm just going to run away, you know, and join the circus pretty much like, right. and, um, it was a collective of like, I had some really great peers that had their heads together. My parents put me in therapy, you know, at a young age, like in a support group, um, with my peers that had experienced, um, some sort of sexual assault or sexual violence. And then this, you know, becoming someone else told me about this school that I should check out and then going there and becoming part of that family and having more adults that, you know, cared. So then as, as I started to exhibit what I would say, you know, those maladaptive behaviors, right. As long as once I had more caring and more love and more support, those started to diminish and I started making healthier choices and, um, really caring about myself a lot more and wanting things to look different and wanting just instead of having all of these negative feedback loops, it reversed. And I started having all these positive feedback, you know, feedback loops. And all of a sudden I wanted to go to school and I wanted to leave, you know, leave my bedroom. I wanted to be surrounded by all of this kind of happiness around me. And that took, that took a village for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and there were moments like, you know, like I said, where you start to slide backwards and, and, but when that happened, there was immediate intervention, you know, someone was there, either a friend or my, someone, a teacher or, you know, someone in my family was like, wait, you know, nope, right. Nope. We're, you know, you have to. So I think that for me, you know, that is, exi- that's definitely why I was able to come out on the other end. Um, okay. And look and be, have this, I always call it the, you know, I have, um, I'm lucky to have this hindsight, you know, lucky to be able to look back and be able to analyze what happened instead of still being mired in, in that quicksand that you feel, you know, when you're in the middle of so much like pain and growth and, you know, and it's not that I have everything together, not at all, but, you know, you can look back and see and identify like what worked for me and what worked, what, what, how, what do we need to do to, so that other people, other kids have that experience. Um, And I, my husband and I adopted two boys um, as infants and it's that that as well has been a learning journey. Um, one came to live with us when he was two months old. And I think in the beginning, everyone was like, well, he was under a year. So there's no effects right. from that experience. And, you know, the other one came home with us from the hospital. And, you know, of course, then I start to listen to Bruce Perry talk and you know I read his books and I talk, start learning about you know developmental trauma and you know I, I start to in what you know what happens in utero and I, the more I learn the more um, I can understand that all, you know there is no well that doesn't count or that doesn't matter or that didn't have an effect like every part of our development has an effect on where we are now sure well, and now, I, now generational trauma, I mean, that's starting, yeah. you know, or are we passing it down through our genes? I mean, that's profoundly deep. And um, to me, I just think it's fascinating because 
um, well, that could be a whole other podcast, but <laughs> I think, you know, how do birds know to fear a hawk, right? Or whatever coming in because something happened and then it, it, it becomes part of their DNA and then it's passed on and passed on and passed on. And then as, and then suddenly they know, right? That's well, right. What happens when a parent experiences trauma and then they have this child and is, is that part of the DNA that then's passed on that then that's something to be feared, even though this person never had any experience with that thing to be feared. It's, right. It's fascinating to me. So, yeah. Right. Right. And it's a combination of, you know, genes are a combination of expression and environment. So how they're expressed, you know, the, the marker might be there, but our, our environment determines greatly how that right. expression yeah. comes out. And I think a lot, I think about that a lot. I mean, one of, one of my kiddos has a lot, a lot of um, mental health. Sorry, that was my cat. Oh. A lot of mental health challenges. <laughs> um, and you know, I think about, we do, we do have very open adoptions with both kids and I, and we do know a lot about his family history and there, I, there is a lot of trauma, high A scores, mental health oh. issues, you know, yeah. and, um, and what happened in those two months prior and we don't, you know, it, there's just a lot of unknowns and I, and the more I do this work, the more I learn about the science, the more I think about that. And the next, the other big learning for me that happened in the last two years, and mostly because of Emily Daniels, I know you've interviewed her. She and I do a lot of work together. This with Jim was the three of us doing it together, right? Yeah. That you talked about was this whole body of work around somatic experiencing and the polyvagal theory and the nervous system. I didn't know anything about that, but when I learned about it, I was like, it was that second, like you know, that lightning bolt, like ah. Oh, yes. oh, I am like, right there with you. I'm like, what? That sense of safety in the body, you know, when, because, yeah. and for me, you know, having already done so much work with teachers directly in their classroom, coaching them, helping them look at their lesson plan, you know, really deep work with teachers around becoming trauma informed practitioners. This was the big missing piece because they were still saying, this is great preventative stuff because I'm very universal, like we're, we're taking a very universal approach to this and, and redesigning our classrooms and our lessons so that everybody benefits and, and we're very preventative. And they were like, that's great, but I still have kids throwing a chair at me or cussing me out or flipping me off or, you know, or, or, or all these things that are happening in the moment that they get triggered, right? They're, they get riled up and that they get dysregulated and the kids are already dysregulated and they continue this, you know, they dysregulate each other. So I can say to them, a dysregulated adult can't help a dysregulated kid. I can say that I can write it on the board. I can have a PowerPoint slide with that on there. And they're like, great. I believe you, but what does that mean for me? Now How do what? I do that? Right. Like, what do I, and I was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, I don't really know the answer to that. So when I met Emily and I started to really understand this body of work around the body, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the missing piece that I haven't been able to really explain or understand or, um, yeah. And so that's why she and I started doing so much work together. We've done a bunch of trainings together, conferences together, because we were like two puzzle pieces. Yeah. Know, not only complimentary in our, in our training style, we're very experiential when we do work with with groups, um, very interactive, a lot of stuff around, you know, that we bring up from, again, like this is stuff from the seventies, like project 
adventure, challenge by choice, ropes course stuff, team building. Like, you know, we make teachers do all these ridiculous exercises and uh, trust, not quite trust falls, but you know, you could. Yeah. Um, but this kind of stuff is it builds psychological safety and understanding the importance of that in a group dynamic. Um, I already knew that part, but how, how we do it in the body, I didn't under, you know, I didn't have as much understanding about how we feel safe enough. And that's when we can really dive into learning as adults, if we are in a group where we feel safe. Um, and that, that creating that felt sense of safety um, is, is huge. And it's challenging now as someone, as a parent who has mental health supports in my home. Now I feel like I'm having to teach like the therapists that come into my home to work with my kid about this, this concept, because they don't know it either. Right. And I'm trying to get them to understand that he needs to feel, you know, a felt sense of safety and, you know, all of this stuff. And they're just like, I don't know. What you're I love about. it. I think it's awesome. Well, I want to make a left turn just for one second because yeah. when you were talking about Emily, um, I love, I love when the universe aligns and, and things, it's just crazy. Awesome to me. So when I started working for the agency that I referred to earlier in Cincinnati on my first day, I'm sitting in this boardroom, um, waiting to do, you know, all the paperwork with HR. And this person comes in and sits down next to me. And so we start a conversation and she had been hired in as a therapist and she was her first day. And so this friendship developed right there in that moment. Um, and we ended up working together on some things and in classrooms, like she would come into a classroom that I was in. And um, well, then we both ended up leaving within, I want to say two weeks of that agency. She went to do her thing and I went to do my thing. Well, um, she was brought in as executive director for the tri-state trauma network here in this area. And her name is Melissa Adamchik. Well, she invited me two years ago to speak at her fall conference. And so I, I, I went and spoke about my story, which was my first time standing before 250 people, you know, talking about my story for 45 minutes. And, um, well here, last what October yeah so a month and a half ago Emily was the featured speaker Melissa brought her in at the conference and so I was just like oh my gosh Emily I had her on the podcast and she's awesome and so yeah so I was telling Melissa how wonderful it was that she was bringing her on board so yeah yeah I I have been that's one of the things that I'm so happy um and I'm happy is not even like the right word but you know, to be able to connect with people deeply like Emily, like Jim, you know, like, you know, all of my colleagues at ACES Connection, uh, you know, that really, um, they make my heart grow, you know, and they are, it's an amazing community be, to be part of. They're incredibly supportive and the, the, I haven't met anyone that's come at this work. Um, that isn't coming from such a, uh, I can't, I don't know how to describe it, like a deep heart perspective. You know, they are, they really are coming at it with so much love. Yeah. And, and then trying to figure out like, what's their avenue? How can they, how can they make a difference? How, but we're all trying to disrupt the systems that are causing harm with so much love and intention. Yes. Sometimes it's technical, you know, and sometimes it's, it, 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 but this movement is so fueled by all of the immense 
caring and passion to make things better. Yeah. And so that, that feels really good. Like, you know, whenever I start to get kind of discouraged or like you said, this is so overwhelming and I, and I need to give myself that little pep talk of like, okay, one school at a time, one kid at a time, you know, yes. I, I just, re, I just think I, I, sometimes I actually reach out to the people around me and go, I'm starting to lose faith. I'm starting to get discouraged. I need help. Oh my and, gosh. I did that yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I seriously yeah. did. Like I reached out to one of my previous podcast guests who I consider a friend and I was like, cause I knew she would get it. And I said, oh my gosh, one, I'm feeling imposter syndrome. And two, yeah. oh my gosh, this is like crazy overwhelming. So, And it was just a reminder. And there's just a beautiful reminder. I even think I put it out on, I may have put it out on the Healing Place podcast Facebook page. And, and so the, the support has been, you know, of, um, yeah, just, just keep remembering you're doing this from a place of compassion and just, you can yeah. only do what you can do. Like I can yeah. only do so much, so. Yeah. Yeah. And if I didn't, and I'm not very good about um, reaching out and asking for help or reaching out and telling people, I'm always like, I'm fine. Everything's fine. You know, that's right. always, fine. Right. And then, and that's been also like one of my big, you know, things for myself that I'm trying to work on is to, to be vulnerable. Like I'm all about Brene Brown right now. Like how do I right. be vulnerable and get in the arena and get my butt kicked and right. not, you know, <sighs> be vulnerable. That's like my mantra, be vulnerable, be vulnerable. Yeah. Like there's, you know, you're in a safe place. And so part of that is letting people know that I'm not fine and that I need help that day or I'm feeling discouraged. And, you know, or if I've had a, I had a really great training in Idaho, um, not too long ago. And it was just one of those days where you left and you were like, yes, yes. Like that was amazing. And, and the energy was so great. And I called Emily like of all, you know, I was like, I need to call someone who gets this. Like you just said, right, right. all this, and she was just like, yes, you know, <laughs> I needed that. I needed that boost. I needed to remember that there's a reason that yes. this is so important. Um, and I think that happens, you know, working in communities through ACES Connection all the time. That's why we're trying so hard to tell stories yeah. too, right? And focus on, on the storytelling because otherwise you can get lost in the big picture um, and telling the individual stories is what reminds us that it makes a difference. Yes. Amen. And hallelujah. Yeah. One thing that I do, you know, the word appeared often on your, on your website and, um, I've just been seeing some controversy over it. Talk, can you, do you mind talking just a little bit about what is resilience? Mm. And, um, you know, I the love philosophy that question. behind it. Oh my God. I love it. So, I agree. I mean, I love the discussion that's going on around that word. And um, I think it's great because I think if we're asking people to be resilient in a system that's unjust, that's wrong. That's not okay. So if we're not addressing, you know, the systemic racism that occurs, the, you know, harm that our, some of our capitalist system is doing to our communities, the, the fractured um, support systems that exist, the, if we're not addressing the systemic roots, these adverse community experiences, right? If you think about the pair of ACEs work, if we're not addressing the systemic roots of our adversity and we're just asking people to be resilient in the face of injustice, then right. that's not okay. Well, that's I, I not, don't even think it's like doable. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's like asking kids, like, we want you to be resilient, 
in this system that's harming you. Yeah. You know, where you have your, you have no power, you have no voice and you just have to dealt with what's given you or be pushed out and be resilient, pull yourself up, be strong. That's not what we're talking about. Right. We're talking about the ability within a, a healthy, supported community to be able to face some adversity and bounce back with support. But it's because we're never going to, we're never going to erase adversity. Right. We can try to build structures that don't cause so much chances for adversity, right? right? We right. can rebuild our systems to be more just, but... But, you know, death happens. Accidents happen. That's what I'm saying, right? We're never going to not happens. have right. these things happen in our lives. Sorrow and pain and grief right. are part of life, too. But how do we learn how to face that as a community with support and be bounce back resilience. I always think of it as like the ability to come back, not just grit your teeth against the wind, right? Against a storm. It's not just like grin and bear it and, you know, face. It's about bouncing back in a really healthy, authentic way where you're going to rise and fall. And um, I was, it's interesting. I've had this conversation with, um, with colleagues whose first language is Spanish and the translation to resilience in Spanish is more like resistance sort of, it doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't translate in a healthy way. So that's, they've been like, that doesn't really, right. It doesn't really make sense. And, and, and I, and I, I think that's a lot of the conversation that's, that, um, that has come out recently. And I'm so glad that, that people are willing to have that conversation and be, and we need to be critical of ourselves and our language and be careful about the words we use and how we say it and the intention that we have behind it and be clear about when we say that we want to build a resilient community or a resilient environment, what we mean by that. Yeah. Well, and you know, I, I said, I, well, resilience was a new concept when I came across ACES Connection. Like I didn't even know what resilience was. People would ask me, how did you survive all of that you went through? And I'd say, I, I don't know. <laughs> I yeah. don't know how I did it. But then as I started to realize and study and learn and research and, uh, you know, my grandma Kitty, she was powerful, powerful force in my life. And so when I made this little video that I talked about the one caring adult, um, it's, it, I feel like she, Yes, it was resilience, but it was it, the bottom line it came down to, she loved me. She right. cared about me and she never hit me. She didn't yell at me. She didn't. She was this presence in my life that made me feel valued. Mm -hmm. And truly, I feel like that's what it is. I, I don't know if that's what built quote unquote resilience in me, but I think it was just this this internal sense of value that she the seeds she planted inside of me. That's what I held on to. That's absolutely. What yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a you know when they try to the Center on the Developing Child at Harvard has done a great job of trying to help us understand the science of resilience and how it comes about in our body, what it looks like in a community. I use their 
resources all the time because um, they're meant for people who aren't scientists to understand this science of resilience and that connection is at the root of it. Yeah. Whether it's a, you know, it's one person and a community connection and that sense of belonging, that's the root of our resilience. So we need to figure out how we're building that in to everything that we do so that there's opportunities for constant connection and caring so that when, when people face adversity, they have a well to go to. Yeah. Well, or, well, you know, that person, that sense of connection of community of faith, whatever it is that helps buoy them up when they can't do it themselves until they can. Yeah. Then they feel like they, they, they can feel um, okay on their own, but we are, a lot of our communities are not, are, are set up for isolation, not connection. And I think a lot of this great community-based resilience work is, is that's what they're focused on is creating opportunities for connection and trying to eliminate the isolation. Um, I can't remember the exact quote, but uh, Father Paul Abernathy, who led this work in Pittsburgh um, around developing a resilient community was, you know, they had found people living in radical isolation and now we're living in community. Like that was the change was taking people out of their houses and bringing them together and meeting their basic needs and, and providing the opportunity for connection. And that from that well sprang the change that they needed to see in the neighborhoods, but it was that, that deep sense of connection that sparked it. Yeah. So when we talk about, what communities need to do. I mean, I, I do presentations for ACES Connection often at, around the country on like building resilient communities. And that's the root of it is how are you, how are you building community food? Like, are you bringing people together to eat? <laughs> Never underestimate the power of food. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have a, such a cool story to just say about that really quick. So we, we decided to go to Hilton Head, which is our favorite place in the world last week. Right. And we went and we were like, what are we going to do for Thanksgiving? It was so off track of what we normally do with our big family Thanksgiving meal and so forth. So we went to a community Thanksgiving dinner on the island. And it was 400 volunteers from churches that came together. And it serves about 1,600 people every year. But And then you can donate and it goes towards um, you know, a charity that helps on the island. but Or in the and the whole community. But it was the coolest thing to be at this community Thanksgiving. Like I yeah. loved it and made these connections. And I just got a text from someone that I met, the stranger in line. Um, yeah, that we, I gave him my business card. And so we just made this powerful connection. And it's just, to me, way cool. So I love that idea. Yeah, because that, and that wouldn't happen. Those kind of connections wouldn't happen spontaneously. But, you know, those authentic, the, the, the things you can never plan for, right? The people that you meet that you'd never, right? You'd, right? You know, it just is circumstance. But you have to set up opportunities for that connection to happen, right? And if we're all just in our houses and and not finding ways to come together, then we lose those opportunities. So thinking whether you're thinking about schools or whether they're thinking about communities keeping that in mind, like how are we creating opportunities for connection every day, all day long? Yeah. So in your classroom, in your school building, 
with kids, with adults, with adults to adults, right? Like how are we creating opportunities for connection? Because that is the foundation of our resilience, our support, this, this, what we want to see happen yeah. in all of these different systems. It's the root of it is people and, you know, are caring for each other. Right. Well, thank you. No, I've never really addressed the, just resilience. And so thank yeah. you for speaking to it. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I, it's great. And I, I hope the conversation keeps going and with many voices speaking up and that we deepen our understanding of what we're, cause for me, that's just my response. Right. And I, right. I welcome, like, I want to have a really, um, thriving deep discussion about that because I think it can be something really good but I think if we're not careful it can be seen as you know something not good right you know something harmful so um yeah I I really appreciate that well I think that's why ACES Connection I just I mean I can't sing their praises enough that 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 community is because we do have so many voices present there um that are that are giving you know, not necessarily opposing views, but just, you know, there's healthy conversations happening that need to happen because all of this is going to just, it's just helping form this amazing philosophy. Um, yeah. That that's growing and beautiful and wonderful. And so, um, yeah. And we can't do that without dialogue. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And we have to be willing to, to really, um, to dig in, but for that, you need, a felt sense of safety. You need psychological safety, right? We need right. to create, we need well, to create those safe places for discussion. Exactly. <laughs> we, we can have another seven hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked at the clock and I was like, Oh my gosh, we've been talking an hour. That's crazy. <laughs> um, so yeah. And I, I, again, I wish we could talk for, for another couple hours because this has been wonderful, but is there anything else that you wanted to address before, before we end? Hmm. No, I don't think so. Okay. I know we talked about, um, I'm just looking at my notes. Oh, one thing I wanted to say, I love it that you put on your, on your page, the beach is my happy place. (laughs) Oh, I can't even tell you. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin, right? So I'm in Ohio. Now now I am a hardcore California girl. Like (laughs) wait, Terry, wait till you spend your first winter without winter. I yeah. can't even tell you. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm done. I'm never going back to winter ever. I can't like. <laughs> no, we're so excited to move there. You know, to move in June, and we're we, we said my, my oldest son lives in Denver, and so yeah. our daughter, who's 13, is like, um, we can just fly to see John if we need That's right. to go. That's <laughs> like, right. Absolutely. That's right. we, we could go to Colorado, see some snow, and then go back to the beach. I can drive six hours to Mammoth if I really need to see big snow. <laughs> and I, I mean, I miss my community in Wisconsin where I grew right. up. I miss my family. But it's it, living near the beach. I mean, when I start, I'll, you know, the other thing I start to do when I start to feel discouraged or overwhelmed is I just go for a walk at the beach. Yeah. I take my dog. I go for a walk. You know, there's a great dog path right along the ocean, and it's just like the smell and the sound and what I'm looking at. Half an hour, and I'm good. It's all it takes. Like it's just a good half hour walk along the water, and I'm totally reset. So, yeah, it's I'm stuck. I'm never going to be able to not live near the beach I, again. 
<laughs> I, I get you on so many levels on this. So <laughs> I'm really excited for you. Oh, Every thank time you. I hear posts about that, I'm like, oh, she, she, she's going to love, she doesn't even know how much she's going to love it. <laughs> so, so in a year I'm going to call you or text you and be like, Hey, you won't I'm believe so it. excited because it's yeah. winter and I'm not your in, toes are in the sand. <laughs> yeah. It's winter and your toes are in the sand. Yes. yes. That was us last week. I said, Oh my gosh. It is, you know, the week of Thanksgiving. It's November, the end of November. We looked at the weather and we're like, Cincinnati is, you know, 34 degrees and rainy and windy. And we are in shorts. Yep. And my toes, like I didn't, I didn't have my shoes on and my toes were down, scooched into the sand. And oh, it was awesome. Yep. You're going to yeah. love it. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely wonderful. I'm so glad yeah. that, how do people get a hold of you? That was the other thing. Yeah. So I have a website laracane.org right and i'm like i think that's right yes yeah and then um email so it's my name laracane1 l-a-r-a-k-a-i-n number one at gmail um those are probably the easiest ways and then um i can set up zoom or phone conversations with people uh via either one of those okay and yep. then and connection. Connection. same also on aces connection my um if you look under the staff page my email and information is there for southern california and i have blogs on there and yeah there's there's lots of ways to find me okay wonderful all right well again thank you for everything you're doing shining that light of hope into the lives of children and and Hoping. Well, thank you for giving us opportunities to talk about it. Cause a lot of times it's just me and my dog talking about it. So <laughs> I know. Well, I appreciate <laughs> Maxie on my lap. He's, uh, he's been a pretty good boy. Oh, he's been so good. He's so quiet. <laughs> oh my God. He's adorable. He is. He's, he's, he's ornery, but he's awfully darn cute. So, you know, yeah. we put up with him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I really appreciate, I love your podcast and I, I love that you're giving all of us this big community that we have growing an opportunity um, to, to share with others. So like you, I feel like you are one of those people that's providing the opportunity to connect. So oh, thank well, thank you. Thanks so much. I, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I love the idea of, of bringing voice to this movement and bringing voice to all of this and offering a space for that to happen. Last check I checked, which was before vacation, uh, this podcast has been downloaded in 48 countries, which is just, it's mind blowing. That's amazing. Yeah. But the, just the thought of this going out and reaching people everywhere, um, in, in your beautiful message. I love it. So yeah. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us on the healing place podcast. And remember until next time, be gentle with yourself. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening today to the Healing Place podcast with your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Terry, her mission, and the Hope for Healing journey, visit Terry's website at www.terrywellbrock.com. Thank you for liking, commenting, sharing, and offering your reviews on our YouTube channel, audio outlets, and Facebook page. And as Terry reminds us, until next time, remember, be gentle with yourself.